If you would read along with me this morning, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. This is the Word of God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he, um, as he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is, is, is wanting the church to, to be confident in their salvation, to know they have eternal life. And John gives three tests or three signs of salvation, of those that are truly saved. The three tests that he's been going through over and over and over again are, are the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test is, is if your life living, um, reflecting a life pursuing righteousness. The social test is, is your life reflecting a life that loves the brothers within the church. And the doctrinal test, do you have the right doctrine concerning Jesus? 1 John 2 28 through chapter 3, verse 10, John is going over the moral test. Last week, I didn't finish my sermon. I had three points. The first point was the righteousness of God. God is righteous. The second point is the children of God. And I gave four characteristics through 1 John of, of a child of God. What, what is a child of God characterized by? And the first one was that they seek righteousness. The second one is that they are sojourners or foreigners in this world. This world's not their home, but instead the, the, the third point is that they have hope in a better land, in a better home. And lastly, they seek purity. They seek purity. Today we're going to look at the third point that I didn't go over last week, and that's the children of the devil. The children of the devil. Anyone who is not a child of God... Anyone that's not a Christian is a child of the devil. It's a child of the devil. And you might be thinking, because I was thinking this as I I wrote this and was planning out my sermon, isn't that a little harsh? Isn't that that hard? I mean, earlier John calls all false teachers antichrist. Now he's saying all unbelievers are children of the devil. Right? Isn't there a middle ground somewhere? Listen, not for John. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. For John, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Either you're in the light or you're in the darkness. Either you know God or you don't know God. Either you have fellowship with him or you don't have fellowship with him. Either you are a child of God or a child of the devil. I believe John gets this black and whiteness actually from Jesus himself. 
Right? Listen how absolute Jesus is. It's almost shocking how absolute Jesus is. John 14, 6, Jesus said to, to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, there is no other way to salvation except through Christ. Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either they'll hate the one and love the other, or they'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Or Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. I mean, there's no more black and white than that. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground for Jesus. And, and I'll be the first to admit that calling people the children of the devil seems harsh. Right? It seems harsh. We all have friends and relatives that we love that aren't Christians. Or we know people, neighbors, that, that seem like good people that haven't put their faith in the Lord, that aren't saved. Are they really children of the devil? There was a disconnect for me as I was going through this, this passage, and so I was thinking, I'm like, why does it seem so harsh? And if that's true, why does it seem so harsh to call call people, non-believers, children of the devil, right? If that's what the Bible clearly teaches, why is, it, why is it so hard? And as I was thinking, here's my guess, right? In our culture, we don't think sin is that big of a deal. We don't think sin is that big of a deal. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some sins are, are big deals in our culture. Rape, murder, pedophilia, prostitution, drugs, crime, right? Those are big sins, Right, that's what characterizes in, in our thoughts of a child of a devil. They do those types of things. And just so you know, that list gets smaller and smaller and smaller as our culture progresses. But outside of these big sins, we don't think sin is that big of a deal. I mean, I hear all the time, it's like this phrase of our culture, I hear all the time from people saying, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, right, or it's just a harmless sin or harmless activity, Look what John says in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The word sin here is hamartia, um, which means to act contrary to the, the will of God. That's the, the word in Greek. Lawlessness, on the other hand, is uh, Anamaya, to behave, to behave with complete disregard for the laws and regulations of a society or of God. Right? To live lawlessly or, or, or lawlessness or lawless living, it's rebellion. It's rebellion to God's law and to God. Right? Sin is, is described as a transgression against God's law. Lawlessness is described as a rebellion against God. A disregard, a hatred towards God and his laws. 
So why does John make this clarification to, to say sin is lawlessness? Why does he feel like he needs to do this? Well, as I was reading through this, most commentators feel that, that the false teachers, the Gnostics, were, were separating these two words, sin and lawlessness, and saying they're, they're kind of two types of sins. There's lawlessness, which is incompatible with being born of God or being a Christian. And remember, these Gnostics called themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of Christ. But they said sins, on the other hand, didn't count as lawlessness, and that's different. And you can do whatever you want. You can sin and do whatever you want with your physical body. It doesn't matter. That's what they were teaching. And John wanted to make it clear. Sin is lawlessness. Doesn't our culture do this or something similar? There's very few people out there, if you ask them, non-Christians... Right? I'm not talking about Christians. Christians can fall into this camp too. But non-Christians, if you ask them, are you sinless? They would say no, right? Most people say, yeah, I've sinned. No one's perfect. I'm not sinless. But in the same breath, they'll say, but I'm a good person. Right? I, I've sinned, but I'm a good person. In essence, most people think, I am a sinner, but I'm not a bad person. Right? Because you ask the average person and uh, if they're going to heaven, the answer, the average answer you'll get is, yes, because I'm a good person. What does this mean to say I'm a sinner, but I'm not a bad person? This is what I think. Again, I, I'm, it's just how I, how I work. I think through these questions. I'm like, well, what's this mean? I think when people say I'm not a bad person, they're saying I haven't committed any major sin. I haven't committed any major sin. Our culture doesn't recognize what they would call little sins for what they truly are. Lawlessness or rebellion against God. Listen, all sin is lawlessness. All sin is lawlessness. And I think the reason our culture does this, right, doesn't, doesn't relate sins to lawlessness, is because they only look at the action of sin, They only look at the action of sin, not the heart behind the sin. What do I mean by this? Well, well, think with me of the Garden of Eden. I know we go there a lot, but Genesis 3 is so foundational, especially when it comes to sin. Think, answer this question. What was the action of sin in Genesis 3? What was the action? You could say it. No, what was the action, not the heart? eating a piece of fruit. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Eating a piece of fruit. Now, what was the heart behind the sin? Disobedience. Rebellion. I mean, think about it. God gave Adam and Eve everything. Everything. And he said, eat, explore, live, enjoy. It's yours. It's paradise. Just don't eat from one tree. One tree. And what Adam and Eve do? Ate from that one tree. Thereby in their hearts saying, God, I don't trust you. You said that one, that one tree not to eat from will bring death. I don't believe you. I think it will bring life. In their hearts, they're, they're saying something like, you're holding, holding something back, God. You're not loving. You're holding that tree back from me. We deserve better. Now, isn't that ugly? Even though the action was just eating fruit, 
the heart behind the action was ugly. It was ugly. And I want you to think about this. I mean, God gave them everything, and they sinned. And, and it gets worse because it was unrepented sin. Unrepented sin. What did they do right after they sinned? They tried to cover themselves. They saw that they were naked. They grabbed fig leaves and, and tried to cover their nakedness, their, their shame and guilt. They tried to cover it with some, some leaves, right? Saying, in essence, it's not that big of a deal. We can fix it. And God confronted them and gave them a chance to, to confess. That's why God said, where are you? He knew exactly where they were. He's given them a chance to repent and confess. And what did they do? Blame shift. Eve said it was the snake's fault. Adam said it was the woman's fault. But Adam's words were, were this. The woman you gave to me. The woman you gave to me. In other words, not only did they rebel against God, they blamed God for their rebellion. That's the heart behind every unrepented sin. That's the heart behind every unrepented sin. Sin is lawlessness. And if it's unrepented, you're not agreeing with that statement. You're not agreeing that sin is rebellion. You're saying one of two things. Either it's not that big of a deal, God. Get off my back. Or it's someone else's fault. Someone else's fault. I sinned because, because of my wife. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my job, my coworkers. It's because I have depression that I sin. You know what you're saying when you blame shift? God, it's your fault. You gave me this wife. You gave me this husband. You gave me this body. Hey, listen, sin is ugly. It is ugly because sin is lawlessness. The actions of your sins may not be that big of a deal in your own mind, right? A white lie, anger, being lazy, lustful thoughts, ungrateful attitude, and maybe not that big of a deal action-wise, but the heart behind those sins is lawlessness, rebellion, ugliness. Part of repenting from sin is looking at sin the same way God looks at sin. Literally, it means changing your mind. It's seeing sin as lawlessness. It's seeing sin as rebellion. It's seeing sin as a big deal. Therefore, anyone who claims to be a Christian, a child of God, yet lives in lawlessness, lives in rebellion of God, makes a practice of sin, is a walking contradiction. And is not a child of God, but instead a child of the devil. A child of the devil opposing the work of Christ, opposing the nature of God, and opposing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's our three points this morning. Opposing the works of Christ, opposing the nature of God, and opposing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A child of the devil is in opposition of the work of Christ. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sins. 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of, of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse 5 again. It says, you know that, that he appeared. That's Jesus, his first coming. This is what it's talking about. He appeared his, in his first coming in order to take away sin. Now look at the second part of verse 8. The reason the Son of God, Jesus again, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Well, again, think of Genesis 3. Right? His lies and deception to Adam and Eve brought, brought sin and it brought death into the world. We live in a fallen world. What was God's reaction to the devil's work? Well, a promise. A promise to, to us that God would destroy the works of the devil. That's Genesis 3.15, right? Which is a curse on Satan. And it says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, which means seed, between your seed and hers. He will crush your head. The seed will come and crush Satan's head, and you will strike his heel. There's this promise of destruction right from the beginning. The destruction of Satan's work. A cursing on Satan. A crushing of Satan's head by this promised seed that's coming. Listen, Jesus was that seed. Jesus was that seed. He is the promised seed. And verse 5 says, He appeared in order to take away sins. And verse 8 says, The reason that the Son of, of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil crush Satan's head. What's interesting about this, this uh, verse, verse 8, is the Greek word used, translated destroy. Destroy. It's actually luo. I, I kind of, I was going through the Greek and reading through it, and that word jumped out at me because it's, it's, one of, it's like the first word you learn in Greek is luo for a number of reasons. It's used 40, 42 times in the New Testament, and it literally just means loose or untie to loose or untie. It's only translated five times, destroy. I want you to see the picture that John's painting here. The devil's works brought chains to mankind, enslaved mankind to sin, it put, put him in prison. And Christ's works literally loosed those chains of death and slavery to sin. It brought us freedom by taking away our sins. Therefore, if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, yet continue to sin, you practice sin like, like a doctor practices medicine or, or a lawyer practices the law. You're defined by that practice. You're a living contradiction and you're in opposition of the work of Christ. And look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. This verse actually doesn't translate well into English. The words keep on are not in the Greek at all. Keep on. Not in the original Greek. The NASB actually captures the more word-for-word translation. I don't think it's a better translation. I want to be clear. The ESV is a better translation in this verse. But the more word-for-word translation reads like this in verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. 
No one who sins has ever has seen him or knows him. This translation makes it sound like the NASB makes it sound like the only way you can have fellowship with Jesus is being sinless. Right? It's a bad understanding of this verse for two reasons. The first reason is this. It contradicts 1 John. Right? In 1 John 1.8, John starts off, he lays the foundation and says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John makes it very clear in the beginning of his letter, he is not talking about perfection. I want to get that across. I'm going to say that every week. John is not talking about perfection. But the second reason why this is a bad understanding, it's really a bad translation. The NASB really misses, in, misses the nuance, of the, uh, the, the understanding of the Greek verb for sins. And this gets a little technical, but it, there's a purpose why I want to explain this. I want us to see what it truly means. That the, the tense of sins is a present active, and in Greek, the, the tense is less about time. For English, ten, tense is all about time. It's past, present, future. In Greek, it's more about the aspect or the, the view of the action or the duration of the action. The present active has an ongoing aspect, an ongoing duration that is seen very clearly in Greek. So a better translation is no one who keeps on sinning. Even though those words aren't there, it gets the idea of what the verb means. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Why do I spend so much time on this? Well, this is what one theologian says, and I think you'll see why. In spite of the numerous interpretations of this passage, a true understanding of John's meaning is not difficult to comprehend. The correct view of John's reference here to believers not sinning derives from um, an accurate understanding of the Greek tenses. In, the past, in this passage, the verb that relates to sins are all in the present tense, indicating a continuous habitual sin, action. In other words, John is not referring to an occasional acts of sin, but instead he is referring to a, a continual pattern of sinful behavior. Believers will sometimes sin, even sometimes sin willfully, but they will not and cannot sin habitually, resistantly, and as a way of life. In other words, they can't be characterized by a sin. That's what John is saying. And I want to make this point clear because, again, the goal of this epistle is not to make everyone question their salvation. It's the exact opposite. It's to bring confidence to your salvation. Right? That's what First John 5.13, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life, that, that you may know with certainty that you are saved. And, and I think it, think it helps to, to remember the context of this letter. Right? Remember the context of this letter. There is a large portion of this church that John wrote this letter to that left, and the letter went to the church that remained. They saw this large portion leave. They watched them fall away. And they're claiming to be Christians, but they're engaging in willfully, in, in, in habitual, gross, self-indulgent, fleshly sins of all kinds. Yet they still called themselves Christians, saying sin is not that big of a deal. They didn't look at sin the way God looked at sin. In fact, they were saying what they were doing with their fleshly bodies, and you could just imagine the gross sin that they were in. It didn't count. It didn't matter. 
John is saying these people are not Christians. Listen, you can have assurance this morning that you are saved. I want to be clear because your salvation does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. It's Christ's works. It's Jesus' works that saves you. Remember John, 1 John 2, 1, he is our advocate when we sin and when we fail. It's a sign that you are saved, and the sign is, is a desire for righteousness. It's not perfection. It's seeking righteousness. If you've put your faith in Christ, and you have a desire to, to follow Christ, listen, you're saved. You can have confidence because it's not your works. But if you don't have a desire for righteousness, in other words, you're sinning and it's not that big of a deal. You're unrepented. You're not trying to get away from it. Instead, you're living in this habitual sin. You're practicing sin. Listen, you're in opposition of the work of Christ. You're also in opposition of the nature of God. Look at verse 5 again. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sins. Now look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In Jesus, there is no sins because he is righteous. We spent a lot of time on this last week, so I'm not going to dive into that. But, but I want to look at one phrase. It says, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. I want you to think. Okay, put yourself in this situation in this church. You see this large portion leave saying they have this secret knowledge that if you have this secret knowledge, you, you can be saved, and you guys don't have it, so you're not saved. And on top of that, if you have this secret knowledge and you're saved, you can live any way you want to. Think how tempting that is for our flesh. Right? This, this, these Gnostics had this secret knowledge. And actually, later on, we find out that there is this mystical experience that happened in gaining this secret knowledge. And if you gain this knowledge or you have this mystical experience, you are saved, and then you can live any way you want to. The Gnostics' belief gave license to living hedonistically, to living fleshly, any way you want to live in the flesh. Don't be deceived. Listen, modern beliefs do the same thing. Modern beliefs do the same thing. What does atheistic evolution teach when it comes to morals? I mean, think about it. You're just an animal. There's no God. There's no higher being that we're accountable to. What's that do to morality? Live any way you want to. Think of postmodern philosophy. There's no absolute truth, right? Truth is relative, in other words, to the individual. There's no, there's no standard or truth that's above us that we have to submit to. We get to make up our own truth. What's that do to morality? There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute moral truth. Therefore, you can make up morals. It's relative to the individual. That's why you hear people say, well, that may be wrong for you as a Christian, but for me. Listen, these are the two major beliefs taught in universities today. Let me ask you a question. Where is the most hedonistic living happening today in our culture? Where is the most drunkenness, parties, sex? Universities. <laughs> dorm rooms. That's not a coincidence. Belief always directs behavior. 
Belief always directs behavior. Let no one deceive you. There is a God. He is righteous. He will judge by a moral standard that's the standard for everyone. Look at verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Right, remember what the Gnostics were, were claiming. Right? They were claiming that they were actually righteous spiritually and could live any way they want physically. So they were claiming to be 100% righteous, yet living in complete wickedness. And John says no. He says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Again, John's not talking about perfection He's simply saying, you can't claim to be 100% righteous and living completely wickedly. That doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John's talking about this this, uh, heresy. He's talking directly to the heresy. I think it's important, again, that we bring context it's always important they bring context into Scripture and, and any kind of communication. But it's important that we remember the context of this letter. Otherwise, you start thinking John is talking about perfection. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about desire for God, a desire for righteousness. And those that don't have a, a desire for righteousness are in opposition to the nature of God, but they're also opposing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I think it's important that we examine what it means to be born of God this morning. Because John is going to talk about being born of God, and he already has been talking about it, but he's continue talking about being born of God throughout 1 John. And, and part of being born of God is being adopted into to Christ's family, being children of God, into to God's family. This is talking about the new birth, or sometimes you'll hear theologians say regeneration. Scripture actually says that too. That means the new birth, that's the, the being born of God, that's all the same thing. So I wanted to spend a moment talking about that. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 1. The Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 1. This is one of the clearest passages on the new birth, being born again, regeneration, and all of Scripture. So I think it's important that we lay a foundation. When John says born again, what is he talking about? John 3, verse 1 says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus is a a, a Pharisee, right? In other words, he's an expert uh, of the law. He's He's a religious man. He's an expert in religion. He's an expert of the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament. This man knew his Bible well, and he was, it says, the teacher of Israel, meaning he had a a prominent teaching position in Jerusalem, probably. He came at night, which indicates that he didn't want to see people see 
him associating with Jesus. And that tells me that he actually had some genuine questions he wanted to ask Jesus. He wasn't trying to trap Jesus like the Pharisees normally were doing. Because if he was trying to trap Jesus, he would have done that publicly. But he comes at night so no one would see him. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, I think this is genuine. Nicodemus has seen the miracles that Jesus has done. He knows Jesus is from God. He's heard Jesus' teaching and how, how insightful and wise and, and deep it is. And so he goes to Jesus at night, and, and Jesus actually anticipates the question that's on Nicodemus' mind. Right? He reads his heart and, and answers the question before Nicodemus can even ask the question. But here's the question, if you read it backwards, it's something like this. What do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? In other words, another way of saying this is, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be saved? What if someone came to you and asked you that question? I mean, that's like softball, right? Or teeing it up for you just to share the gospel. I've had someone actually do that to me once, and it like almost made me fall over. What would you say to a person if they asked you, what do I need to do to be saved? Look what Jesus answers, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not what I would say. That would not be the first thing that came out of my mouth. Someone said, what do I need to do to be saved? You know what's ironic, and just, as, just kind of a side note, is I hear in popular Christianity all the time that we shouldn't use words like born again, and even in church, because it's confusing. Someone should have told Jesus that then. <laughs> it's my philosophy as a pastor, just so you know, is I will use biblical terms and explain them. And I think we should use biblical terms and explain them. I, I just, I, I, it makes me laugh every time I hear that. I'm like, have you read John chapter 3? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless, unless you are born again, in other words, you can't be saved. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in, into his mother's womb and be born? Most commentators that I read say Nicodemus was confused and didn't know what Jesus was talking about, but I don't think that's right. I think, I think Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. I don't think Nicodemus was necessarily confused. He was well-versed in rabbinical teaching, which always used analogies. He was just following along with the analogy. He understood. He was, he was questioning back. Jesus was saying, this is what Jesus was saying, and he got this. That's your spiritual birth, and that's what's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. That's what's necessary to be saved. Your spiritual birth is like your physical birth. Think about your physical birth. What did you do to be born? Did you say, you know, I'd like to be born today? What active role did you play in your physical birth? Nothing. You're a passive participant. (laughs) There's nothing you do. It happened to you. You didn't pick when. You didn't pick where. You didn't pick to whom. You did nothing. Birth happens to you. And that's Jesus' point. 
Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do to, be, to, be, to enter into the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do to be saved. And Nicodemus got it. That's why he asked the question back. Like, how could there be nothing? I mean, think how hard this would be for a Pharisee. Right? A legalistic Pharisee whose worldview is this. Everything depends on my works. Everything depends on what I do. He's trying to figure out what he needs to do to be saved. What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus' answer is nothing. You can't do anything, Nicodemus. How hard that would be. He says you need to be born again, just like your first birth, but spiritual this time. Look at verse 5. Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born, uh, born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I, say, I said to you, you must be born again. Then Jesus gives another analogy. Again, two Jewish rabbis talking back and forth. They use analogies. Listen to this analogy. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. There's a play on words here that we don't see in English. The Greek word for wind and spirit is exactly the same word. It's pneuma. So the spirit blows or the wind blows. He's saying wind, but he's using that word. It's a play on words. The wind, the spirit, the, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Right? You never see the wind. Think about that. You never see the wind. What do you see when it's a windy day? The effects. When the wind is blowing outside, you see leaves moving. You see the flag waving. You don't see wind. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When you share the gospel with someone, listen, you don't see the Spirit working on that person's heart. You don't see the Spirit working on that person's heart. You don't see the Spirit changing that person's heart. What do you see if the Spirit is working? The effects of a changed heart. Faith and belief, a desire for God, a desire to follow God. Now turn back with me to 1 John 3, verse 9. First John 3, verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. At the new birth, God plants his divine nature within us. He changes our heart. We become a new man. The old man dies, we become a new man. And God's divine nature is planted within us, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God's seed, we have a new nature we have a new desire, a desire for God, a desire to pursue God, a desire to pursue righteousness. And that desire is growing. I love the analogy here of a seed, right? Because what do seeds do? They grow. They grow. Our, our new nature within us grows in the likeness of Christ. Day to day, we're growing more and more like Christ. Right? That's, that's the evidence I have a changed heart. If you're not growing, you're not pursuing God, you're not pursuing righteousness, and you haven't been born again, and, and instead of being a child of God, you're 
still a child of the devil, opposing the work of Christ, opposing the nature of God, opposing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And John ends this section on this moral test by making it as clear as possible in verse 10. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does it not practice righteousness is not of God. Right, the moral test. If you don't have a desire, a pursuit, a love, a hatred towards sin and a love towards God, doesn't mean we don't fail. Doesn't mean we don't fail over and over and over and over again. But it's we want to get away from it and we're pursuing God. We have this desire for God. If you don't have that, you're not a child of God. And look what he adds. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's actually kind of uses a transition into the next topic, right? This is the moral test, our lives, our righteousness, our pursuits. The next topic is going to be the social test. He's going to go over the social test again. Do we have a love for fellow Christians? And he's transitioning into the social test. Do we love our brothers? But I don't want, want us to miss the significance of this last line. It's not just a transition. One of the ways you know you are saved is the moral test. We just went through that, right? Do, do you have a love for righteousness? Do you have a love for God? Are you pursuing him? Are you running away from sin? But the clearest way you know that you have a true love for God is by looking at your love for fellow Christians. Do I love others within the church? Do I have a love for the church? Because again, we are made in the image of God. Right? And Christians especially are, are, are rebirth, right? rebirthed into the likeness of God, likeness of Christ. Do you love fellow Christians? I want to end with a quote, and this is a challenging quote. I know, again, this is grace. We're not talking about perfection. Right? At the same time, we need to challenge our love for each other. This is what Glenn Barker, in his commentary on 1 John, writes. The author, then, is not stressing absolute moral conformity or sinless perfection, but the one requirement by which all requirements are measured, love for one's brother— For this there is no substitution. Its violation allows for no excuse. Its application permits no compromise. Here there are no gray areas, no third possibilities. Either one loves his brother and proves he is a child of God, or does not love his brother and proves he belongs to the devil. Listen, I challenge us to love one another. I know we want to reach our community. I know we want to reach the nations. But if we don't love one another, we're not going to reach anyone. And one of the clearest outreaches we can do is by being a loving body and the outside world to hatch be seeing us love each other. So I want to challenge you with that. In the next sermon, we're going to be going over the social test. Do I love my brother? Do I love my brother? Again, I think... I'm just going to be clear. If you come Sunday mornings, that's all you do and go home and don't interact with the body anywhere else. You don't have deep, rich, brotherly love and fellowship. You need to find a community 
find a community that you can dive into and, and practice that brotherly love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as I pray every week, Lord, I pray for deep, rich fellowship here at Country Oaks, God. This is the season we're in, Lord. I know you've, you've put on our hearts and the elder board, Lord, to, to lead the church this direction, to, to encourage the church to love each other, Lord. And I know that that's sometimes hard with our size. And Sunday mornings as we come, we can easily come in late and leave early and not connect with people at all, Lord. I challenge every single person, Lord, in our body to, to find a group of people to pour into, Lord, to have them pour into them, to, to be accountable to, to love, Lord. God, I, I challenge our church to serve each other, to put down our wants, Lord, and, and look for others to serve, Lord. God, I, I, I pray for that. I pray for that spirit within our church, Lord. And I pray that it's a witness to our community, Lord. God, I pray people see how we love each other and go, wow, what, what is up with that church? that they see your glory through our love for each other, Lord. God, help that be true for Country Oaks. I thank you for this morning. In your son's name, amen.